You are listening to the League of Unextraordinary Gentlemen with Brent and Jerry. Oh, it's unextraordinary. God dang, but what? Of course, it makes sense now. Thought it was a little braggy at first, but now I read it correctly and it's unextraordinary. See what they did? See what they did with the thing and the un at the beginning? I get it. Get it now. Boy, it's a whole new twist on it there. I gotta... Gotta sort of mentally prepare for the... For the comedy stylings of the un at the beginning of the word. A podcast about writing by two guys who never have. Okay. So, uh, what are we on? Episode 12, right? Huh? We did uh, episode, episode X. X, plus. Yeah. X, quote unquote, 11. <laughs> I got put up there. Yeah. Um, and, I believe you didn't count. Uh, you know, you and me both. Uh, no, I, was, I left it all to you. <laughs> no, no, I'm surprised I didn't count. Oh. I mean, I was, you know, it was like, it's like that one in a moment shot where you where, you're, where you can go, oh, I'm going to make it big and we're going to have episode 10 be episode X. And Well, as it was, episode 11 is episode X. So we'll let, uh, we'll let the, the, the audience think otherwise. And in fact, we increased our reader listenership last week. I don't know if it was a result of the, the gag like that or... And we also have a couple of uh, professional authors that are listening. Yeah, I suppose that uh, any professional likes to see the screw-ups make himself <laughs> feel better. <laughs> right, 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 yeah. right. But uh, so the listeners know, if you can hear the background noise, we're at uh, one of the local coffee shops, LA Cafe. Um, nice place, yep. locally owned and run, good food, good, uh, mostly all-natural kind of stuff, uh, homemade. Yep, kind of deal. So, and they uh, they sponsor and run the Peace Fest every summer. Yeah, yeah. They, it's uh, it's actually gotten quite large now. It goes oh, yeah. almost a mile up and down the street here. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, one of the busiest busiest traffic areas in there, and they pull it off every year. Yep, doing a good job with it, I think. Um, and maybe if Heidi, who's working today, she's one of the owners. It's a couple owned things. She might walk by and we'll get her say something. But uh, it sounds like it's getting busy on the other side of the room. There. Uh, so anyways... You can toss a grenade over there. Oh, wait, sorry. I'm thinking of my, <laughs> back to my video games again. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. Um, so anyways, I, I wrote a blog post this morning. Um, I've had a couple weeks of really bad writing periods. Uh, yeah. Not because of lack of ideas or, or you know, I, it's kind of a weird feeling. I got that urge to get on the keyboard and start typing away, but when I actually sit down and do it, I don't want to do it. Mm, okay. I, I just, I just like, ugh, I just can't stand the thought of doing it. But when I'm away, I get the itch again. So I wrote a post, hoping you know, the last time I, I put this out to the the internet, I all of a sudden turned out like seven thousand words. Yep. And I'm thinking maybe it will work again. So we'll see this weekend. Okay. But as I was writing it, um, had an interesting, interesting. The, the my blog posts tend to be more freeform. I don't go planning it. Yeah, I noticed because you don't even really edit them. Thank you. Yeah. We we need to be kind, but that's why we have editors, right? Yeah. See, yeah. if I had to worry about all that subjective stuff like spell check, yeah, grammar, probably punctuation, yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Like that. So, um, one of the things that, that hit on me is there was there's been a there's been a several things, right? So first of all, 
Jay Conrath uh, is taking some breaking from blogs. Uh, personally, I've always wondered if, if that wasn't going to happen because he's been very amped up about ebooks, self-publishing versus the publishing industry. Right, right. And some of his posts have been pretty inflammatory, even for my standards. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but I've liked it. Don't get me wrong. I'm in his camp completely. But I believe there's more coexistence with uh, "quote unquote" legacy publishing. Right. So there's that. There's also uh, another po- po- podcast that I've started listening called Wordplay uh, by some other uh, well-known authors and uh, literary agents. But their podcast was advocating why publishing industry is really good. Okay. Now here's the position that the. So I'm going to go. On, I'm going to attack Wordplay for a second. Wordplay was saying uh, that. Uh, the self-publishing agency and standard or legacy publishing is more like YouTube and the uh, Hollywood movies. Hmm. And in my and in my post, I was saying that's not a completely accurate analogy, right? Because YouTube is made for me and you to post our own videos and share them out. Right. It's not made for somebody to make a whole movie and say, "Look at this great movie I made." Entertain yourselves. Right. That isn't to say there's not professional content, and by professional I mean people get paid to do what they do on YouTube. Mm-hmm. But I mean professional content that makes you want to turn on the TV at night and sit down with your uh, loved ones and watch a good show. Right. That is more accurately portrayed by the independent film uh, movement or right. genre area, mm-hmm. and that to me is a more perfect analogy of self-publishing and the legacy publishing. Uh, model, where Hollywood has almost adopted the indie filmmaking. I mean, directors and actors go to indie films, sometimes working on them for free, to get because they really like the story or they like, like the director, what he's got going on, and they'll go in there and do that for a project or some, or maybe if they want a tax break, I don't know, <laughs> what, what, what have you, but there's a lot of cross-filtering. Yep. And I think the same thing, I think it's possible that that will happen, or could happen, but it, but it all requires the legacy publishing area to change their business model and change how they see things happening. Right. And that's really the question. Are they going to change to meet these new times and meet what readers are doing now? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Uh, Hollywood was never unsuccessful. They weren't ever failing. The microphone is attacking me. They, uh, they weren't ever failing to the point where the independents were threatening them. I don't think they let it get that point. I, because, right. it, and here's why, if you look at it from a technology point of view, the technology to produce a very a very good independent movie is now moving in the hands of common users. Right. I mean, what a lot of people probably don't know is that the, the computers and software that Hollywood uses is Apple's technology. Mm-hmm. And all of that is sitting on this MacBook Air that I'm using to record this podcast now. Yep. I could do... Pretty much do what they do if I had the skill sets. Right. But I can do it. And, yep. and there are amateurs who are doing that for their one hour family video now. Mm-hmm. So that's where I, I, you know, they realize that I think. Maybe not, but it, it, I mean, it works. The analogy works a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah, YouTube, YouTube is actually aimed against that. Um, you know, it's aimed at the short videos. It was originally set up for video blogs. That was the way it was, you know, the original YouTube. You had uh, a handful of people that were doing their video blogs, and they all had subscribers and stuff like that. Now it's just a matter of people put up everything. It's like uh, like I go out and I search for uh, 
you know, my favorite band X, whatever, you know, their their latest video, I'm going to find dozens of copies where people have put different, uh, you know, maybe they've uh, done the lyrics over top, uh, they put different pictures, they did a slideshow along with it, and hopefully somewhere there I'll find the band's official video, you know, whatever they publish, but I'm also going to find the concert videos and all that, you know, I'm going to find all that stuff uh, as a... You know, if it was more of like an independent film thing, you know, it'd be like either I'm going to find it on my, you know, independent film channel or I'm going to find it on the main film channel, depending on which way my band went. You know, not everybody and their brother was able to put up copies of the stuff. Right. You know, YouTube was said to be that whole public model. And I think that Google, who now owns YouTube, would very much like it to become that become a place where people put real movies and real shows up on. Right. But sadly, no, it's not. It's it's a public forum. It's a place where people... It's a public forum for video. And it's not going to happen. Right, yeah. Uh, And like all public forums on the internet, it tends to, you know, um, descend to the lowest common level and uh, Google and YouTube have to fight to keep that from being so low that it gets shut down. Um, So what do you think? Do you think there's room... In this, but for them both, for self-publishing, and, and I hate the term legacy publishing, but let's call it that for sake of argument. Just traditional publishing, yeah. Do you think there's room for them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the thing that I'm not sure of is, uh, well, I mean, well, it's the business model. The current business model for traditional publishing uh, is failing, and I don't think it can succeed. Um, especially, you know, as new authors and even existing authors start turning toward uh, e-publishing, like uh, Jerry Purnell. Uh, he publishes through the uh, legacy publishing thing, you know, but at the same time, he's put a lot of his old catalog out there as e-publishing stuff. Now, oh, yeah. you know, 20 years ago or 30 years ago, he would have had to, you know, go to the publisher say, I want to put together a collection of my old stories. I want to get these novels back out there. They would have renegotiated a deal and right. all that kind of stuff. And then it would have been, you know, put out, limited print run, etc. But basically, you know, as long as he's alive um, or, you know, as long as his heirs or whoever, you know, his books comes to the states, somebody can put them up for e-publishing. And they can make more of the percentage copyright. off of it. Right, you know. Um, and, and he's and even said, thing. and Purnell's even been uh, a benefactor of the, uh, uh, what's the word called, the, the torrent or, or ebook sharing, I guess. If you, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, I don't want to call it theft, but sharing books. Uh, right. That, you know, to put up the, someone burns a copy of his book that wasn't previously there and put it up. And he's benefited from it because it's created a demand. Right. People have these low quality books and they say, you know what, this is good. I want Jerry Purnell's stuff. But this is all I got. And he puts right. it up for two ninety nine or a buck, and now people can get it. Right. You know, um, and the, the price point is what kills the piracy. Um, if it costs me $40 to go get a DVD or, you know, $30 to go get a DVD of my favorite movie, um, you know, it's like I'm, I'm not likely to go do it. You know, right. That's, that's that. Um, but if I was into piracy and I wanted that movie... You know, it's, it's not that hard to find a good quality one. Once the DVD's out, you find these DVD rips and stuff like that that you can torrent. And with a fast enough connection, it's not much of a hassle to get it. Um, but at the same time, if you could legally go download it for $4 or $5, you know, less than the cost of going out and seeing the movie you know, in the theater, 
uh, I think people would be more likely to do that than to go to the hassle of piracy. And, and you know, that's just, that's, uh, just totally throwing out any moral or ethical considerations. It's oh, just a matter right. of convenience. I mean, uh, piracy is, I mean, let's call it torning because uh, it's, it's, it is a hassle. I, I download uh, South by Southwest's music. Uh, South by Southwest big concert that happens out in Austin, Texas. Um, and the music concerts that go on there, they put all those MP3s up for download through Torrent, through the same mechanisms that pirates use. Right. And it's a pain in the butt. It really is. It adds a lot of uh, wear and tear on your computer, a lot of bloat software, and you yep. run a risk of doing it. So, yeah, I get it. You know, piracy is really not as cool as you think it is unless you know what you're doing. And 90% of the time, the stuff doesn't work when you download it, and you have to go through extra hoops to get it to work. Right, but even you know, even if it works, um, you know, it is, it's a convenience thing. It takes time. Peer-to-peer sharing isn't that fast. No. Um, so, but, you know, with a, with a book... Book files and even a you know a decent quality PDF file is not that big, so they will go faster. Well, assuming and assuming that the guy who's who's sending it to you did a good job in his work. I mean, that's right. Assuming the PDF is of decent quality, but that's uh, that's one of the other things. Um, even when searching for legitimate stuff through the torrents, it is a matter of searching and finding the right one because of that peer-to-peer network. There's like uh, you know ten thousand people out there that think it'd be funny to put up. You know, a, uh, right. their favorite manga with the, the cover of your ebook on it. So you download their favorite, you know, their favorite comic book, and it's like uh, it's not what I asked for. Or wanting to rickroll you. Yeah, that that goes through all the time too. Uh, I've heard, and this is what I don't quite understand, um, that with a lot of movies, they will have like the first five minutes of whatever movie you're looking for, and then they'll go uh, into porn. Yeah, yeah. So like download a movie and it ends up being porn. I've heard that like, too. That, that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Um, yeah, it doesn't because it's like, well, why would anybody do that? Because it's not like you're making them buy anything. And it's not like you're encouraging them to buy it. So so let me ask you this. Yeah. So it's just all convenience. So you, you, I think you, you're kind of with me is that you think there's room for both, but quite clearly... Legacy Publishing has to change its business model right. in order to make it work. Yep. Or they're going to be on the losing end. Yep. And I think um, the the Legacy Publishing, the model that is falling apart is the one that's tied to bookstores, big box bookstores, uh, small bookstores, etc. The whole idea that they can buy books, if they don't sell, they can return them. The publisher can't afford that. Um, I think that what to succeed, this is my personal feeling, is that um, legacy publishing needs to go to print on demand. Doesn't have to be excuse me, doesn't have to be instant, but um, there there shouldn't be warehouses full of boxes of books waiting to be sold. Well I would argue that they I I don't disagree with you, but I think that because this is going to segue into the next topic here is as I've always talked about, mentioned in our other discussions, is about where do bookstores stand, brick and mortar stores, where do they sit in the fight against Amazon? Because it seems like a never ending battle between legacy publishing, brick and mortar stores. But where do they sit when it comes to, where does that, where does print on demand fit into that niche? When I think that legacy publishing is one of their main niches where they could really do it out and justify their prices on, the, on a hardcover book. If they turn it into collector's items, turn it into 
uh, instead of having like 20,000 books in a store, which doesn't mean anything to me anymore. When, when Walton's books was around and I was in college, I was dazzled by walking into these huge warehouse stores of books. Mm-hmm. It was awesome. It was cool. You know what? I was lost. Nine times out of ten, I didn't walk out with anything because I couldn't. I, I, I was always wandering around looking at other things and not finding, really focusing in on what I want. I would rather a local bookstore cater to me. So maybe it's almost like where you got you walk you have a science back to niche bookstores, science fiction, right? Or the mystery bookstores down the street. Yeah, the big thing that the bookstores have over Amazon, and I think it's just a failure of Amazon, really, is uh, you know selling related books. Uh, if I go and I find a book that looks really interesting on Amazon, and it's part of a trilogy, I might not know that it's part of a trilogy. And I'm going to have to actually look at the picture of the cover to figure out that it's book two of three. Or or if you look down at the related purchases others have made, you're like, well, he did five other books, and then it dawns on you, oh, this is one of six books. And there's no way to say, uh, like, uh, for instance, Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, If I I come up and I say, oh, I really liked uh, A Dance with Dragons, what are the other books? Amazon can't tell me. That's ridiculous. Yeah. That's ridiculous. Well, the, well Amazon is... But they're going to be all, all together on the shelf at a brick-and-mortar store. And you can pick it up, and you can ask somebody at the store. Mm-hmm. I must be unusual, because I don't buy much from Amazon at all. Maybe my right. Christmas presents. But, and then here's the next question, which relates to where the brick-and-mortar stores stand in this fight. Um, is Amazon really a good place to buy, or is it just the cheaper option? It's a cheaper option. It's very convenient. Uh, I've bought a lot off of Amazon. Um, and, but you have to know exactly what you're looking for. It's, not, uh, it's a good place to buy. It's a lousy place to sell. Okay. Because um, unless somebody is looking... You, when somebody buys something off of Amazon, they're already sold. They go to Amazon looking for it, either that or their terrible impulse people that just buy whatever so it's else like, buys. It's, so it's like America's garage sale. Um, yeah, well, you want no because a garage sale you browse and you look at stuff and then pick up what you want. This, yeah, but you, you know what you're looking for when you go to garage sales. I don't know anybody who doesn't have a list of things they're looking for. Oh, I know lots of people that just wander garage sales to really? see if they can find a deal. Yeah. Okay. Um, but in this case, you know, when you go to Amazon, you know what you're looking for. You find it, you dump it in your cart, and then you buy it. Huh. I like. I mean, I've bought. I've bought stuff. Uh, well, like recently, my most recent Amazon purchase. Um, bought a power supply for a friend's computer because he was too lazy to get it himself, and uh, bought a spare power supply and cord for my laptop. I I went searching and searched on Amazon and just, you know searched on Google for the whole web and just looked at all the shopping results. Found the cheapest place that looked legitimate. Um, and then compared that with shipping prices and stuff to what I found on Amazon and said, okay, you know, Amazon has it for almost the exact same price. I can get it from one source. It's got the Amazon guarantees. It's got the Amazon uh, shipping. So it's all you know, really convenient. I can get it here without any hassle. But I knew exactly what I was looking for, and I went out and found it. And Amazon happened to be where I found it. So let me ask you this. Yeah, and you've said it a couple times in, in, in your... In your analogy or your story here, but country lettuce. Yeah, yeah your NPR voice now is is uh, 
price really that important? And if it is, that means that brick and mortar stores are pretty much dead because they got a lot of overhead to cover in the price of their books, and they can't compete with a dollar ninety nine, two ninety nine ebook. Even some some guys are even trying to raise that price up a little bit. But I believe that there is a market cap for some books based on the quality of the author and the fame of the author himself. But I'll caveat that, that that kind of author that raises his price based on the quality he thinks runs a risk of outpricing himself. Right. People like think, hey, you're too good, you're too full of it. But anyways, back to my point. My point is this: if if really price is the point, really the reason why people driving people to Amazon, brick and mortars don't have a chance. Me personally, the reason why I don't go to Amazon, or the reasons why you stated, it's hard to find stuff there unless I know exactly what I'm looking. I don't go to Amazon to, to just browse. Right. I go to iBookstore to browse. I go to Barnes and Nobles to browse. I go to the bookstore for the quality. I go to the Barnes and Noble store here in, in, in our area because I enjoy, one, the ambiance. I enjoy the store. Two, I enjoy the, 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 uh, the people, the, the employees. I can talk to them about my books. We talk, we talk about what we like, what we read. I get informed about things that are coming up that in my busy day-to-day, I face it, I'm not tied to the computer quote, on the internet, I'm tied yep. to it for other reasons, but not for just internet surfing, so I'm not always updated with the new books, and I care not to be. I, 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 I prefer human-to-human interaction, so I like to go to the store and find out mm-hmm. what's coming up, what's going on. Now comes the decision, is where do I buy the book? Uh, and that sometimes that's a tougher one than not, but it's not always priced that it comes down to for me. Yep. Um, for me, you know, I'm, I'm uh, very price conscious all the time. I don't have a big budget for anything. Um, so, I'm not saying you do, but... Um, well, no, but clearly, yeah, I mean... Price, you know, price for me is very important. But, but, our li- but let's admit, our lifestyles are a little different. I mean, uh, right. I, I, you teach, I don't. Teaching does not provide a, a very high level of income. So yeah, price point is is important, but and so it's good. It's an interesting discussion because we have a uh, an economy here. So we have differences, right? The uh, the thing I you know maybe it's loyalty, maybe it's uh, ethics, morality, something. But if I go to a bookstore to find a book, you know, because I can't, uh, I don't know what I'm looking for. It's like you know, I I want to see if there's something new by my favorite author, or uh, you know, I'm. Looking for a new uh, a new series in my genre, you know, some new author that's out. Uh, so I go to a bookstore, I browse through the shiny covers and all the cool titles to look at, read the backs of the books, and I say, "Oh, hey, all right, this book looks really good." I'm not going to say, and I can get it for thirty percent off at Amazon. So thank you. Put it back on the shelf. Go walk out and order at Amazon. I'm going to get it at the bookstore that showed me that book. And, and that's. See, it's not, yeah, I don't use the stores to shop for things I buy on Amazon. Right. Um, but at the same time, let's say I bought uh, the first two books of the series, you know, at, at uh, a brick-and-mortar store because they were available. And uh, then the, the third book comes out four months later at Amazon for 40% off. All right? I've got the choice now of yes. driving to the no store... Reason. Or buying it from Amazon, but I already know exactly what I want. You know, I can pre-order it from Amazon, so it'll be shipped the day it comes out. Um, and uh, you know, if I'm patient and I'm ordering a couple of things, I can actually get free shipping, which helps offset the ga- you know the gas cost of uh, 
because th those are usually the, the equivalents. You know, what you pay in shipping is what you pay in travel costs to go to a bookstore. So then I'm basically getting the book at 40% off. And I'm likely to be able to buy more books that way. But here, and here's, the good, here's a good one, uh, is that our other hobby, Games Workshop, right. we face the same, me and you face, have the same differences here, we face the same problem. Do we drive down to the local GW store to buy our models and our hobby equipment, which without a doubt is very expensive as well, right. or do we go online where we can typically get a 20 to 40% discount? And, and that's where, I, I mean, I follow the same method I do with books, um, I, although I don't like to order online my hobby stuff just because I don't like waiting. I mean, there, if something new comes out, I want it immediately. I, I want it. I don't want to wait. The other thing is, uh, with the hobby stuff, less than with books, but still the same thing, is the uh, quality issue. You've already paid for something before you get to see it. Uh, with Amazon, only once have I gotten a book in a condition that didn't seem like brand new. Oh, interesting. I never thought about that, too. Yeah, that's a big thing. If, uh, you know, if I got, uh, like, if I go to a bookstore and I find the exact book I want to read, but it's been sitting on the shelf for a while and it's all tattered and stuff like that, I'm not going to buy it. I want a new book. If I well, yeah, pay with, for a new book, with, I want a new without book. Without a doubt, if I, when I buy a physical book, I always pull the one from the back of the stack. <laughs> yeah. I don't buy the one on the front. Right. You know, and... Um, you know, with, uh, with Amazon, they do a good job of packaging and stuff like that. And uh, I think that's important. Uh, it, it's one of the reasons why people eat fast food. It's uh, consistent. They know yeah. exactly what they're going to get, whether they're eating it in Tucson or Timbuktu. That's interesting. They go to McDonald's, they know what they're going to get. It's prepared the same way, it's consistent. And here's why I think, and I've been saving this, this piece of my argument, this is why I think that places like Barnes & Nobles, if they can change their business model, if they're willing to do it, it's not if they can, if they're willing, uh, they can destroy Amazon very easily. Mm -hmm. Because Amazon has been trying for years to put physical stores in certain areas in order to speed up their onward ship time. Right. Meaning that if they can put a physical store and push what people in that area are doing, if, I'm saying this for listeners who don't know what onward ship time is, they can put a physical warehouse or a store somewhere, then you could just, you, you buy it on, online and you go to that store and pick it up or it ship to you in like half the time. Right. They now, call them uh, fulfillment centers. Yes. But it's basically a Walmart distribution center mentality. Yeah. Push the product out to where people are buying it. Now, the problem with that is that that eventually over time is going to increase Amazon's overhead. Yep. So that's going to put more of a price on not on the user necessarily, and the user, the, the customer might see it because people selling on Amazon and things that Amazon sells directly itself, they're not going to want to lose profit. So that overhead gets tacked onto the individual price that the consumer buys. Yep. That's, that's typical business. But this is why I think Amazon could fail and lose a lot if Barnes and Nobles and other brick and mortar stores are willing to change the typical business model of a bookstore, are willing to take a chance, become, I guess like Steve Jobs said in his uh, Stanford speech, it's like uh, stay hungry, stay foolish. Be willing to take some risks, move out. Yep. Um, part of that I think uh, is you know the the print on demand doesn't have to be individual demand. It doesn't mean three people order a book, you print three copies. Um, but instead of printing. 10 million copies to be distributed nationwide, this store here orders 10. So they get 10, because they think they can sell 10. They don't have to order 100 and put 10 on the shelf. I love where you're going with it, because I, if, if, I don't know if you've been watching it, but Black Library, 
Games Workshop's publishing arm right. does exactly that. They put an announcement out that says, hey, this back catalog book that we haven't made in four years, print on demand, taking pre-orders now. And as the pre-orders rack up, after that date's hit, they take all those pre-orders and yep. order that many books. Yep. Uh, you know, that, that type of print on demand, it's, uh, it's not foreign. That is the way, you know, uh, most industries have been going, you know, just in time inventory, you know, all that for manufacturing. Right. You don't stock stuff that you're not going to sell. So, um, how does that support? I guess now, because we all know prices are set for somehow, right? Yeah. Well, does the, that right. reduce an author's uh, cut? Does that his like major bonus that, that is always see the one of the arguments for legacy publishing is that they say authors are wanting these bonuses up front. You know, mm-hmm. sell me my book, give me five thousand dollars, and I'm good to go. Uh, we you haven't published yet, so we don't know if that's true or not. Right. But that means that if they do print on demand or they start doing this uh, just in time logistics stuff, you're not going to get the upfront bonuses that eventually earn out. You're going to get yep. you're going to get paid your whatever your royalty structure is from the beginning, and maybe a small signing fee. Yes, uh, you know that says okay. We've committed to publishing your book. You've committed to not publishing it elsewhere for a certain amount of time. Um, and uh, I think that works better. I'm not sure how it's going to work on the author end, but uh, the way things work now, the way I understand it, is um, publishing house publishes a book. All right, so there's a print run has lots of copies of that. That goes to the distributors. The distributors send it to the bookstores. If they don't sell after a certain amount of time, it gets sent back and pulped. All right? That's the only reason that the bookstores agree to carry these things is because they're saying, okay, here's, you, you have to have, uh, you know, your bookstore has to have 500 copies of this book. Well, I don't know if I can sell that. That's all right. If you don't sell it, you can send it back. It sounds right? like the Reaper Miniature business model. Reaper Miniature, even though they're successful, mm-hmm. they tell stores that uh, here's all the models you've got to carry, the ones you can carry if you want. And if you don't sell them after a period of time, you can take the send them back to the company and they melt it down. Right. Um, now, obviously, melting it down from materials to redo it is a lot more efficient than pulping a book. Certainly. Yeah. yeah Reaper probably doesn't lose a whole lot in that deal. Yeah. But. Pulping books, pretty much, you, you know, you're, it's, it's not much more than just trashing. Um, so... But, uh, you know, that, that right there, the only reason that the bookstores are able to succeed is because they don't have to commit to buying so many. So what if they could say, all right, I don't need 500 copies of your book, but give me 50, and the distributor doesn't have to say, uh, well, I, I really need you to take 500 because I've got a million sitting there. He says, okay, you're going to take 50. This guy's going to take 50. Over here, this guy's got 75. This little bookstore only wants 10. Okay, that's the size of my print run. Wow, right. Yeah, you know, and uh, you know, then literally, you know, I mean that that print run because uh, you know print-on-demand technology and you know traditional print technology are pretty much the same quality now. Um, you could also just turn it around and say, instead of doing a print run every few years with corrections, I could do one two times a year. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And still run it pretty much with the traditional model, just with a lot leaner inventory and a lot less overhead on storage and no real huge commitment to the stores. Because uh, yeah, that that puts the bookstore into the traditional retail environment. And if they could if they could guarantee um, from print to delivery a certain period of time, it could work. It could work very well. Mm-hmm. You can go to a bookstore. You can buy your book. 
and it's going to be the same quality you've always expected. Um, but the bookstore is not going to be taking as big a chance. They're going to be taking the same chance every other retail store does when they stock inventory on the shelves. Right, right. Um, but, uh, I mean, I, you know, I work in a retail uh, environment now. Uh, I used to run a game store. And, uh, you know, I know the problem. You know, there, it's, it's a big thing. It's like, you know, how much inventory can I afford to hold? I need to have one more item you know, one more stock of an item than everybody's going to buy. Yeah? Yeah, and that's all I need. If they're going to buy four, I need to carry five. All right. If they're going to buy three, I need to carry four. But you never know what that number is going to be. True. Um, but the current model, the way it's set up, you you end up with, you know, you're, you've got 100 copies. And you don't know how many you're going to sell, but uh, you got 100 copies and you're stuck with them until you're deciding that you're not going to sell anymore. Right. So right now is the distributor, the traditional part, that is stuck with it. They're the ones that are you know, committing to saying, we're hoping all these are going to sell. Well, uh, we got a couple more minutes before we, gotta, before we go over our, make one of our longest podcasts episodes ever. Yep. Um, so where are you at on your project? Uh, well... And did we have a top ten list of excuses <laughs> in episode X? Maybe we should do that on uh, double X. Double X, yes. Uh, no, our, yeah, my big problem is uh, there are other things I want to do, and that keeps distracting me from, not even distracting me, it just pulls me away, and I have not been getting to it as much as I would like. Uh, I plan on changing that this weekend. Yeah. So maybe maybe the, the real answer is take a couple weeks off, come in in November at NaNoWriMo, and hit it hard to get back into that, yeah. that habit. What I've been doing more lately is setting myself up for NaNoWriMo. You know, what do I need to do to make sure I can you know write fluidly without having the little breaks and distractions? And Well, it, what do they say? It takes two weeks to form a habit? Yeah. I mean, that's maybe that's what we do during NaNoWriMo is reform our habit, because mine got broken about two weeks ago. Yeah, mine, mine's never been fully formed. There's been periods where I've been beginning to form it, and then I get off on something else. So I've only I've only probably put out about fifteen hundred words this week. Oh, that's not bad. It's more than I've done. Yeah, more than I have done. Well, oh, did I do? Yeah. yeah. Well, this is a pretty great episode. I think our experiment doing in the wild is working. Sure. And we're gonna try to do this during November uh, for each of the weeks. So. Yeah. Um, uh, we're the League of Unextraordinary Gentlemen. Thanks for listening. Thanks. But make sure we can hear every like breath and your eating. Sound checking, what I believe is that you get to talk about NPR voice. Oh, gotcha, I'm dead.